Thanks, Nathan and Peter, and thank you, Nathan, for leading today. And uh, there's um, a line in the song that Nathan wrote that struck me. It said, this world's truths are nothing but lies, and it's so much the case. And, and so much of the time, even Christian talking is is filled with philosophy that does not come from the Lord. And this book of First Peter, talking about purity and joy and suffering is counterintuitive. It just doesn't make sense to be joyful, to be pure in a, in a, in a time of trial and suffering because everything in us wants us to, um, to, to moan and groan and also, and to, to act out in ways that we shouldn't be acting out. But God's truth is not man's truth. And today we're going to talk about living in light of the ultimate reality of Jesus Christ being Lord, not only of our lives, but Lord of, of this entire universe. If you knew for a fact, if you knew for a fact that at the end of this day, Jesus would come back, how would you live it? Would you go to a movie or watch a TV show? I, I doubt it. Uh, would, would you gather your family together and tell them how much you love them and, and give everyone a chance to confess sins and, and be right with one another? Would you call your family and friends who live far away that don't know Jesus and just plead for them, plead for them to give their lives to the Lord before He returns on this day? The answer to how we should live our lives if we knew for a fact Jesus would be coming back today is found in our text, in the middle of our text today, First Peter 4, 1 to 11. And the answer may surprise you a bit. Uh, all 11 verses are written that we're going to look at today, First Peter 4, 1 through 11. All 11 verses are written in light of the truth that what we see in this life is not all there is. We should live even when we suffer for our faith in Christ with the confidence that, that all will be made right one day. We've seen this over and over and over in First Peter. Uh, and the reality, we should also though live in the reality that at any moment, Jesus could return and judgment will begin. When Jesus comes back, judgment will begin. Though the wheels of justice grind slowly, they grind surely. You may see people that get away with anything and everything in this life, but they're really not getting away with it. One day, all will be made right. There are some very specific instructions in this passage for those of us who believe that God actually exists and that we are to follow Jesus' example in suffering and that at, that at any moment, this world as we know it could come to an immediate an abrupt end. Do you believe those things? Do you believe God exists? That we're to follow Jesus' example in suffering? That in any moment, this world as we know it could come to an end. If you believe those things, then this message, this text today is for you. Now, next week in our text, we're going to be told that judgment is to begin at the house of God. When we think about judgment, we often think, all right, you know, God's going to set it straight. And the person who cheated me and the person who did this and the person who did that, they're going to get their due. Well, God says, well, well, hold on. Wait a minute. Judgment begins with the household of God. Now, I, I realize that many of you are going to be traveling for the holidays. Most likely the students are going to 
not be here, except when I tell you what's going to happen next Sunday, you're going to be coming back. I'm sure you will come back just for this. Fly back and then you can go back to Montana for whatever, you know. But we're going to begin one service next week, 10 o'clock. So be aware of that. But but if you're traveling, please let me encourage you to make every effort possible to be here next Sunday. If you don't know whether to come home on Saturday or Sunday, please let me encourage you to come on Saturday so that you can be in the service next Sunday Sunday morning. God's been working in our church this past year. And one of the great things that God has been doing is to reveal our weaknesses and our sinfulness. You know, the, the kinds of struggles that we're having that are coming out go on everywhere. At every church, they go on in every business, every job. Most of the time, though, they stay hidden. Man, it is amazing. With Big Brother watching everywhere and with surveillance everywhere, how secret we can keep things. And we do our best to keep our sin and our weaknesses secret. But you know what? God is graciously revealing our weaknesses, our sin, if you will. Next week is going to be a time of repentance and a time of hope. We're going to, next Sunday, we're going to spend some time just right up here praying at the end of the service for all those who will. Why? Because the text calls for it. The text calls for us to examine ourselves and repent of sin. Now, you may or may not have heard this week that I've got shingles. Apparently, I've got a very mild case. It's bothering me occasionally. Last night, I thought, whoa. It could be fun tomorrow morning. It's not bad at all right now. But if the shingles have me in such a state that I can't preach next Sunday, somebody's going to preach this text. Next Sunday is a very important day for our church. Please be here, if at all possible. Uh, This morning is a special time as well, because we're going to sit and hear from God's Word. Hear what God has to say for His church. In 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. As is our custom, we'll stand. If you would, please stand for the reading of the Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of his of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, 
Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what what more can we say than, than to you belong glory and dominion forever and ever. As we have seen in this book, so often suffering and glory are, are linked. Father, we pray that you would have the dominion not only in the world that you exercise already, but in our lives as we willingly submit to you. And so right now we open our hearts to your word and submit to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks and be seated. Now, when we read through this text a while ago, did those first two verses in chapter 4 make you wonder, what what's he talking about? He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? I mean, does it mean that whoever has suffered, maybe say from cancer, no longer sins? Well, of course it it doesn't mean that. So what does it mean? A good bit of the suffering that's described in the book of First Peter relates to suffering that comes as a result of, of, of one's test, suffering as a result of one's testimony for Jesus. Talk about the Lord and people mock you, make fun of you. That's persecution and that's a lot of what he's talking about. Not all of the suffering referred to here is per- persecution based though, because at the very first of the book in verses six and seven, we're told that God has allowed and even orchestrated, if you will, Particular trials to come into our lives in order that our faith might be built up uh, and, and, and strengthened in the Lord. He uses all kinds of trials. It says various trials to come into our lives. And he does so that our faith may be built and our relationship with him will become a relationship of faith, obedience, purity, Enjoy even in the middle of those various trials because trials are going to come. I mean, there are very few times that I could, I would ever ask you, tell me about the, the things that you've struggled with this past week that you could say, huh? Nothing really. <laughs> I mean, everything's great. Occasionally that happens, but, but we all struggle. Every back bears a burden. We all have our troubles. And God uses those troubles to build us. Now, the particular trials mentioned in our text today, though, in chapter 4, deal primarily with persecution suffered as a result of following Jesus, which is why the appeal to Jesus' example is immediately made. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, Peter's appeal is back to verse 18 of the chapter before. Remember, they didn't... There weren't any chapter breaks, so they knew what he was talking about. Verse 18 of chapter 3, where he talked about Jesus suffering the righteous for the unrighteous. In the same way, Peter says, just like Jesus suffered for the unrighteous, just like so much of his suffering, well, all of his suffering was absolutely unfair, uncalled for. In the same way, arm yourselves, prepare yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way soldiers prepare for battle, you prepare your heart and mind. Now, when Peter says, arm yourselves, he's, he's using military language. He's speaking the language of the warrior preparing for battle. 
when you are preparing for battle, the worst thing you can do is to take for granted the outcome of the battle that's coming up. I don't care how superior you are. You are a fool if you say, I'm going to win, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to do this, that, and the other. Now, that's, you know, that's the way it happens when the boxers are standing there looking at each other, I'm going to bust you. And sometimes they think that, but you're a fool if you think it too much. You, When you go into battle, you go with the idea that there's going to be suffering involved possibly. And you know, I could lose my life. Arm yourselves, prepare yourselves to think that it's not overdramatic to say that this is the same in the Christian life. Though I doubt very seriously that many of us take it that way. I can promise you this. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea take it like that. Our brothers and sisters in the Sudan take it like that. Our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia take it like that. We don't. It's just like, oh, yeah, good sermon, preacher. Appreciate that. Now let's, you know, who's playing today? It's it's just not that big a deal to us. Well, then, though, we come to that phrase that, that is so difficult to understand. Get ready to suffer. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does he mean? Well, for starters, we know that Peter was not talking about sinless perfection. In the very second verse of this entire book, right at the very beginning, he mentions the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, the continual sprinkling of the blood of Jesus in the same breath that he talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, sinless perfection ain't happening this side of heaven. But there's a definite teaching here that the power of sin can be broken in our life. The power of sin can be broken. How? By suffering? Really? Well, Peter is saying that if we love Jesus so much that we're willing to suffer for Him, it is quite obvious that our priorities are focused. They're where they need to be. And our focus is on Jesus, not on the pleasures of this world. Sin is not going to hold the same attraction for those who are willing to go so far as to suffer for the Lord. Just not going to hold the attraction that, 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 that it did in the past. But I think there's a bit more application that is that we can draw here that is more than fair. I would say that when we suffer, any kind of suffering, any kind of suffering, when we suffer well, when we accept our difficulties as from the Lord's hand, and thus we respond rather than react to people and or circumstances that cause the suffering, then the Lord begins to shape and reshape our priorities. I mean, this whole passage has a lot to do with our priorities being shaped in the light of eternity. And the only way that we can suffer well, well, we can be stoic. We can be stoic and say, well, I'm just going to take this. I'll be a better person for it. But you're really not growing spiritually when you do that. The only way that we suffer well is to suffer in light of eternity, with eternity in our sights. You know, the next few verses uh, remind us that many people don't live in light of eternity at all. But rather they live for as much pleasure as they can get in the moment. And that is a great 
temptation in our day for all of us. Maybe we're not looking for pleasures that are sinful and wicked, but we have expectations, don't we, in this life that are a little bit ridiculous when you think about it. You know, you go to a fast food restaurant and it it takes you more than two, three minutes. You're thinking, come on, what's, what's what's up with this? You're not getting my business if you don't get on. Our expectations are ridiculous. Now, I do think it's fair that if you're eating something like a burger and it's cold, send it back because if it's going to kill you, it may as well be hot, right? But you can do that with kindness. You can say, you know, I would really appreciate it. And if they refuse, that's when you get ain't no, just not not kidding. You know, Peter, in, in writing this letter, recognized that many of his readers lived exactly in that wicked, pleasure-filled sort of lifestyle not too many years ago. I mean, these were people who had been saved. These were obvious. Uh, obviously, a, a lot of these people had, had lived this wicked, which was... Uh, run of the mill. There's there's some about there's some stuff about this lifestyle. I just didn't have time to put in today that I'll probably talk about next week about how normal and accepted it was in the day, and in fact expected in the day. And some of these people had lived this way, but not now, no longer. Peter said, "Are you to live like that?" And then he lists six decadent behaviors here, but you can pretty much boil them down to two: alcohol. In sex, the ancient Roman Empire, the modern-day college scene, and business trips, and in the privacy of one's own home. You know, neither alcohol nor sex are wrong in their proper place, but they can get out of hand very, very quickly, especially when they're both present at the same time. People are not thinking about God and they get mixed. It can be trouble. Uh, Peter's made quite a contrast, wouldn't you say, right at the first of this this chapter. Those who are willing to suffer for Jesus and those who live in self-absorbed debauchery. And the fact that people refuse to participate in such activities were often the very cause of suffering. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. You know, I would imagine that some of you have experienced this kind of persecution, especially those of you who uh, were saved as a teenager or a young adult, and you were pretty wicked, and you, you ran with a crowd that just was not thinking about pleasing God at all. All of a sudden, your priorities change. You have this desire to please God, and you say, you know, I can't do this anymore. A lot of people don't want to get saved because they say, I'll have to give up my friends. Don't worry about it. They'll give you up. You don't have to give them up. They'll give you up and they start laughing at you and mocking you. You know why? Because what God has done to you, what He has done in your life through your relationship with Jesus Christ convicts them. It's a light that exposes the dark sins and the wickedness. You know, when you were with them, it was like, okay, come on over here, we'll do this in secret. But now, it's like, da, and there's light. All of a sudden, there's light. And they don't like it. And they malign you. And they point at you and say, what do you, you think you're so good. You're no better than us. 
to which you can respond. That's absolutely true. But Jesus loved me and saved me anyway. And He's changed my life. And you know what? He loves you as well. They're not going to like that. Rather than repenting of their sins, they'll probably accuse and attack you. But, as Peter says in verses 5 to 6, the day of judgment is coming. And this is perspective. It's not going to always be the way it is right now. Next week, so before you get, again, let me just remind you, before you get too excited about, okay, so-and-so is going to get his or hers, we're going to get ours next week. Because judgment begins at the house of God. Verse 5, though, by the way, helps to interpret verse 6. Jesus will judge those who were alive when he returns, and he'll also judge those who were dead. The dead in verse 6, they're not the spirits of the dead that, that we talked about last week at the end of chapter 3, when Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. I, I think I said this in both services last week, but I promise you, I would have never chosen to preach on that text last week had I not been forced to because we were going through the book. That's one of the great advantages of going through a book, and it was really a blessing to me to preach that. But a lot of people want to take, when Je- it says when Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, talking about preaching what I think was the fallen angels of Genesis 6, who uh, crossed the line and God immediately restricted them from doing any more damage in the world. A lot of people connect this verse to it, that Jesus preached to the dead uh, as well as to the living. But when Jesus had died and he, before his resurrection, he went and preached to the dead. But the dead in verse 6 are, are simply, when people, different people say things in certain ways and you say, now what are you saying? And then they explain it and you say, oh, okay, I just never heard it stated that way. Well, that's all that's happening here. Peter is basically saying that Jesus, or excuse me, the gospel had been preached to those who had been alive earlier. Now they've died, and they're alive in their spirits. They're alive with Jesus because of the fact that they believed the gospel when they were alive. That's pretty much all he's saying. I don't have time to say more. Because the next section is so important, beginning in verse 7. But I can talk to you more about that if you'd like to uh, after the, the service. There will be a fee for that talking about that verse, though. That's, you know. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You know, the writers and, and the readers and the hearers of the New Testament, those early days in the, of the church in the first century, were constantly looking for Jesus' return. And that impacted the way that they lived. They expected Jesus to come back at any moment. Now, of course, those who don't believe the Scriptures today would point to the very fact that, look, you guys have been looking for Him for 2,000 years! Coming back? It's just all a bunch of crock. But we know better. Or do we? I mean, really, do our lives indicate that Jesus could come back possibly this day? When we think about the end of all things, we shouldn't necessarily be thinking about charts that we can put out there saying this will happen here, here, and here. Nor should we withdraw from society and wait for the Lord to split the skies. 
But if we live as though Jesus may very well come today, it should have a profound... I mean, if we believe that, it should have a profound influence on the way we live. Hence the question at the beginning of the sermon. If you knew for a fact that Jesus would come at the end of this day, how would you live it? If you knew that at 11 o'clock tonight, Jesus is coming, how would you live it? You know, the best answer may not, may not be the one that you would give. When Martin Luther was asked this type of question, he responded, I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. It's exactly what we ought to do. I mean, he's making an excellent point when you think about it. Most of life is not about the dramatic events that come, even in this technologically advanced age. I mean, good grief, every movie that is made is just greater and bigger and flashier. Doesn't mean that it's any better. As the makers of 2012 apparently are finding out. But it, it's gotta be, everything's gotta be big. It's on a huge, incredible scale. But that's not really the stuff of life, is it? Most of life isn't about the dramatic. It's, it, it, what's important is how we handle the day-to-day stuff of life. Because that greatly impacts our witness and our interaction with other believers. In fact, right after Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, he moves into talking about how believers are to interact with one another. He's talked about how we're to interact with unbelievers. Now he's talking about this is the way you're supposed to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. But before he does, he says that they must bring order into their lives, being self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of our prayers? Actually, most of us would think that we pray so that we can be self-controlled and sober-minded. You know, Lord, please help me here. He's saying, be self-controlled and sober-minded For the sake of your prayers. You know, here's another thing Peter's saying. Even though that we, we, we are aware that the end can come at any time, we've got to keep our heads and, and live the way that God intends for us to live with as much order as possible so that we can be effective in the kingdom. Now, I don't know how you are. I, that's tough for me. I don't, you know, I, I am comfortable with chaos in my life. There is not much order. Uh, there are times when, when life gets busy that places in my house look like a, an explosion has occurred, you know, and, and, and paper and clothes are everywhere, you know, because life is so busy and I just feel like, well, there are more important things. But you know what happens? When it gets like that, I, I lose focus on the stuff of, of day-to-day living that impacts my witness and impacts my ability to be effective in the kingdom. The structure that we build into our lives will enable us to live pure lives and to pray unhindered. And you know what happens when we pray? It's like, okay, order your life so that you can pray and so that your prayers are unhindered and so that your mind is not in a million places. But when we pray, we recognize, oh, well, it's not about me anyway. I'm not the one in charge of events. I want to be. I mean, I very much want to control life. But when I'm praying, I'm saying, God, there's nothing I can do about the people 
that don't like me because I love Jesus. There's nothing I can do about the physical health issues that I have in my life. There's nothing I can do about so many things that create suffering for me. You are in charge. And since the end of all things is at hand, help me to live in light of eternity and put my trust in the one who is in charge of all things. And as we're told in verse 8, we should love our brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly. Why? Pretty interesting verse. Because they're going to sin and we're going to need to forgive them. I mean, don't you love the way the Lord balances all of this, His Word? He's just told us at the very beginning of this chapter, if you've suffered well, sin is not your focus anymore. Living for Jesus is your focus. Now we say, but you know what? Your brothers and sisters are going to mistreat you. And you're going to need to love each other. These people who have suffered and no longer have the power of sin over them still have the presence of sin in their lives. And there are going to be times that they are going to sin. And they're going to sin against you. And so you need to love them enough to overlook their differences in personality and their particular tendencies and idiosyncrasies and even their direct sin against you. That's just tough to do. Let me ask you a question. Do you tend to hold a grudge? I mean, are you one of those people who say, you know, okay, you do something, all right, I can overlook that. But if you do this, if, it, if I begin to detect a pattern, I'm done with you. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely, we're through. And now let me say before I go much further, I recognize there are certain actions and attitudes that break relationships and damage trust almost irreparably, such as the breaking of a marriage vow or cheating someone in business through illegal or highly unethical practices. And in those cases, it's only God's grace and mercy that will restore a relationship to where it was or... It's God's grace that will help you at the very least to forgive that person. But what a beautiful picture of God's grace it is when you do that. What if God's forgiveness of you depended on your forgiveness of others? How would you do? I think actually it's what the Scripture says. If we don't forgive others their sins against us, God won't forgive our sins. <sighs> That's the big stuff. But he's really talking about the day-to-day stuff. You know, one of the tendencies that most of us have that keeps us from coming anywhere close to walking in the truth of Scripture is that we, when we come to a command in Scripture, we're looking for the exception. So I should just forgive this person for violating the sacred trust and, 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 and act like it never happened. Forgive? Yes. Act like it never happened? No, you can't do that. Treat them in the same way? No, you don't. Things are different when a trust, a sacred trust has been violated and you've been sinned against grievously. It's, it's different. But the command to forgive is just as real. And we're talking here about exceptions. We do that all the time, don't we? 
Well, yeah, I agree with that. However, let me tell you about this circumstance. What do you say about that? Huh, 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 huh. Well, what about the day-to-day stuff that creates friction within families, including church families? Verse 8 speaks to it. If we're to consistently love one another, we're going to have to be consistently overlooking their flaws. It's just the way it is. We're going to have to overlook certain things that bug us. You know, this is one of those times where the text calls for us to just stop and evaluate where we are. To just stop and and, and say, Lord, put your light on my heart. It's not what I want. I We're just as guilty of... Uh, of wanting to avoid the light as those who are convicted by our unwillingness to live at the same level of debauchery that they live. We don't want God's light on us any more than than they do. It's just that our sins are more acceptable than theirs, you know. But let's just stop and, and ask God, ask God to reveal to us whether or not we are loving one another earnestly. Because love covers a multitude of sins, you know. Doesn't mean that we don't hold people responsible and accountable. That's not what it's talking about. But he is saying, at least to some of us, that we need to go a lot further than we are typically inclined to do in overlooking other people's flaws. So let's just take a moment. Would you ask God to help you love people? people and love your brothers and sisters at this level let's just bow our heads and 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 take a moment to pray verse 9 tells us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling now most of us when we tend to think about hospitality we think about having somebody over for a meal or opening our home for um home group or something like that in peter's day people traveled in fact this is the way the gospel was spread businessmen uh, primarily businessmen, not so much businesswomen in that day, traveled. And when they would come into a place um, where there were Christians, they would meet with those Christians. And these people couldn't afford to stay in the, in, you know, in, in, in even the uh, days in, Super 8. I mean, they, they just didn't have the money. So people, Christians were expected to open their homes. And apparently some of these people were saying, you know, I'm just, I'm weary of that because... Because, you know, the Christian world, we talk about this world being a small place. This It's a small world. The Christian world is extremely small. We People talk about seven degrees of separation. If you go, there are, if you go seven contacts, somehow you're connected with this person. You know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. The Christian world is much smaller than that. You go about three or four and that's it. And, and, and. And we love to fellowship and we love to hang out and get together. And so when these people were traveling, they just loved staying. And some of the people were saying, I'm just, I'm just weary of it. Well, you know, maybe we could apply this in our day, thinking about opening our homes to our brothers and sisters in Christ and also to our lost neighbors, just making our home a welcome place. And I know that that's easier for some of you than for others. If, if hospitality is not one of your gifts, just ask God, please give me a heart to open my home where people feel welcome in my home. You ever walk in a home and you just feel tense? You just feel like, yeah, should I be here? You know, when you walk in, when people walk into your home, make them feel welcome. If it's your spiritual gift, use it. 
And speaking of spiritual gifts, Peter closes this brief section about Christian's love by encouraging us to serve one another with the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Now, let's think about a few things that Peter is saying that we may miss in a cursory uh, reading of this text, and, and then we'll be done. First, Peter is, is saying that every... It's, it's, it's significant that Peter says that every single one of us has received a spiritual gift. Every one of us. And that gift is to be used to serve one another. It's not to be used to put on a show or or or... or Really, even Scripture talks about it in terms of serving one another, not so much serving God. Spiritual gifts are given so that we serve one another. Notice in verse 10 that Peter says that each one has received a spiritual gift and each one is called to manage the gift that God has given us or to be good stewards of His grace. And that's an interesting thought, isn't it? You are to manage God's grace. How do you do that? Just... Seem, they seem like mutually exclusive ideas. Either it's grace or it's us. No, he's saying that in a weird, strange kind of way, it all works together. We're to be good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, if that seems inconsistent to you, verse 11 tells us that whenever we serve God, we are to speak His words and we are to serve in His strength. And as I just said, this isn't a show that we're putting on. We're doing kingdom work in God's way and in His strength, recognizing that every good thing in our lives comes from Him and the good things that He has built into our lives, especially the gifts, are to be used for the good of our brothers and sisters who are all around us. As we minister, we are ministering God's grace to others. Do not miss this point. What a privilege it is to extend God's grace to my brothers and, and sisters. And when I do, God receives glory. We tend to think of God receiving glory when some big public thing happens. Someone serves God in a very public way. But it, God receives glory when I am anonymously serving you. When you'll never know, when no one will ever know what I've done. God receives glory. But He also receives glory when I do something in a very public way if my heart is right and I am serving out of His strength. That's the point. He's called us to serve Him and whatever He's called us to do, we need to serve in His strength. Well, that's it. That's pretty much it. I mean, when we think back on what we've considered this morning, it brings us right back to the theme of this book. Purity and joy. In suffering. This adventure called the Christian life is not all that much of an adventure to some of us because we are doing so much to make the ride as smooth and easy as it, as we possibly can. We just don't take it seriously enough. And by the way, trials and suffering don't give us an excuse to slack off. Difficulties, in fact, should focus our attention far more on the Lord than it already is. So may I encourage you as we wrap it up this morning to take some time today to read First Peter 4. Read those first 11 verses and, and just ask God to, in review and ask God to speak to you. You know what? Almost anybody could have said everything that I said this morning. It's just straightforward. Really, maybe a little explanation here or there. 
But anybody could have said this because it's, it's, it's just practical, helpful instruction on how to live when life's difficult. So read those verses. Reread those verses and, and ask God to speak to you, but also go through the rest of the chapter and prepare your heart for what God is going to do for our family, in our family, through our family next Sunday morning, starting at 10 o'clock. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, um, we recognize two things. We recognize how small and out of control that we are. And we recognize how big and absolutely sovereign you are. We thank you for the ways that you have chosen to call us to yourself, to reveal yourself to us, and to instruct us. Instruct us, Lord, not just strictly to obey you, but to obey you in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. Because it ain't happening in our own strength. So, Lord, once again, we, we say thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us and for being with us in the midst of a difficult life. And thank you for instructing and empowering us to live in a way that will bring glory to you and will fill us with incredible purpose as we understand that all that happens here is not all there is, but also that eternity brings purpose to our everyday lives. Help us to live in that truth and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.